The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, tell your son to stop hitting his sister with the dog and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 370 with guest Soma Sagar, recorded live Monday, August 18, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who wishes his cell phone would just go away and beep at somebody else for a change. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard and Carl here for you for this next hour. How are you, sir? I am well. Look, always enjoying a Thursday show. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? What's going on here? You're, you're still in renovation hell, right? Uh, it's not really hell. I'm really enjoying it. But, you know, yeah. we have to have them stop while we record. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a studio right below us, a recording studio. Uh, the management of the building and their infinite wisdom decided to rent out the space directly below me to another recording studio. Anyway, uh, let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, sir. What do you got? Well, today I want to talk about the system.deployment.application namespace. Cool. I don't need to say anything more but the first paragraph in the help file, which is, with this namespace, you can program custom upgrade behavior into your ClickOnce application. Ah. The key class in this namespace is application deployment. You can test whether your deployment has an available update by using either the check for update or check for update async methods. The latter method raises the check for update completed event when it has successfully completed. Check for detailed update returns the important information about the update, such as its version number and whether it is a required update for current users. If an update is available, you can install it by using update or update async. 
The ladder raises the update completed event after the installation of the update is finished. For large updates, you can receive progress notifications through the Check for Update Progress Changed uh, and the Update Progress Changed events and use the information in Progress Change Event Args to notify the user of the download status. Isn't that cool? It is cool. This is the, all the stuff you really want out of a good update system. Yeah, so, I mean, we complained about, you know, click once being sort of buried and, you know, I didn't really have any, the application was kind of stupid about it. Hey, here it is right in the framework. Go for it. Now you have control. How about PowerShell scripts? Yeah, no, great possibilities there to go off and invoke uh, click once installs. It's just amazing what you find when you go poking around in there. No doubt. So, famous last words. Richard, what do you have for an email? Oh, I got a good one from an old friend of ours, Thomas Betts. Tom Betts. He's, his subject line is great. It's, now that was a back-to-basics show. <laughs> hey, you two equitable DNR hosts. Thanks for the look inside the sausage factory that is the Windows memory module. It's true that in 95% of my code, especially in .NET applications, I am far removed from the gory details of how the OS handles the memory. But for those few times when you need to know what's going on, it's nice to hear someone like Jeffrey Richter put everything in a relatively easy-to-understand perspective. As for the debate about the magic number of threads in the thread pool, I'm on Carl's side. A few years back, when we needed to use the thread pool in the V1, V1.1 days, we did some research about the number of threads that, and found that the default number of worker threads in the thread pool was 25 per CPU. You could change that using the threadpool.setmaxthreads, but we found documentation that supported keeping the default value of 25, mainly due to the diminishing returns on the performance above that number. I'm sure some developers have justifiable reasons for spooling up large numbers of threads, but the decision seemed to be that if you were using a lot of threads, either A, you were going to handle them yourself and not via thread pool, or B, your architecture was poorly designed. To Jeffrey's point, I don't think 25 was ever a hard maximum value. Sincerely, Thomas Betts. You know, I think I might have read that one already, but I'm not sure. Oh, well, it was a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. So if yeah. we read it twice, forgive us. He gets two mugs. Yeah, uh, I think he's already got a mug. So I'm gonna, I'll send this to KB and make sure he gets a T-shirt. A T-shirt, definitely. Yeah. yeah Thanks, he's Tom. Gonna, he's going to upgrade. <laughs> what else is happening? Uh, Dubai. People are flocking to Dubai like crazy people. I've had more interest in the Dubai positions lately. I don't know why. Um no idea. Also, the New York tour, if you want to spend a year in New York and live in an apartment rent-free and work for some really creative people, uh, have a great job uh, for a year. They'll read all about that at shrinkster.com slash kh6. Also, if you're interested in doing any development with Surface, Microsoft Surface, send me an email, carl at franklins.net. Cool. Well, Richard, this is an exciting show because our guest is Soma Soma Sagar, who's the Senior Vice President of the Developer Division. He is the guy. He's in charge of Visual Studio uh, for developers, the team system, Visual Studio Express, uh, the expression suite for designers, the uh, everything about .NET that spans the client, web servers, devices, services, the common language runtime, the framework, the presentation, Windows presentation framework, Silverlight, uh, IIS, the media server, commerce server. His team also owns the key Microsoft web properties like Microsoft.com, MSDN, TechNet. He's the guy. 
Everything that Microsoft does that's cool is his fault. Pretty much. <laughs> Welcome, Soma. Oh, it's, it's great to be here on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, thanks for joining us. We um, we love to talk to guys like you from time to time because uh, we people don't know where you guys come from. You just sort of appear out of nowhere, but you're in charge of so much great stuff. How did you get started in this business? <laughs> so let, let me sort of you know walk you through briefly you know how I came about at Microsoft and what I've been doing here that led me to. Uh, uh, you know, in doing uh, being in my current job, uh, running the developer division. Okay. Uh, so I was doing my graduate. Sc- I was in graduate school. This is a, a while ago, a long time ago, kind of thing. I was. Uh, I had just started my uh, PhD program at State University of New York at Buffalo, and uh, I was sort of you know debating. You know, hey, you know, should I continue my PhD or should I sort of go out, venture out, you know, get a job, you know, see what that looks like, and then maybe come back and do a PhD kind of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd always been interested, you know, through college and, uh, you know, graduate school, I was interested in systems programming, okay? And uh, so I said, you know, hey, maybe I should apply to a few companies. And one of the companies that I applied to was a, a relatively unknown company back then called Microsoft in the <laughs> northwest of, <laughs> of the U.S. And I said, hey, I'm going to try it out and see, right? And, you know, Microsoft gave me an interview call, so I came in and did a bunch of interviews, and Microsoft decided to make me an offer. And the good news was that they made me an offer in their OS2 group. Right. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember OS2. Oh, sure, yes. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and you, so you're just dating yourself right here. Do you want to actually give us a year we're talking about? Is this 1980 what? 89, 88? No, it was 89. 89 <laughs> January. Wow. Yikes. So, we, we were, you know, in the thick of a joint development project with uh, IBM at the time. No kidding. Yeah. And uh, we'd been working on OS2, and I got a job to be part of the OS2 team, and I said, hey, I've always been interested in systems programming. Here is a great opportunity to work on an operating system, so let me take it, let me give it a try kind of thing, right? Yeah. And uh, I was also sort of getting fed up of the cold weather in Buffalo, and I said, what best than to, like, you know, leave that you know, cold place and come to a, a relatively warmer place, I should say. <laughs> uh, so I started uh, working at Microsoft in January 1989. Okay? Wow. And uh, about a year into that, into Microsoft, we pretty much had uh, come to the conclusion that, you know, that the future of OS2 as a joint development project between Microsoft and IBM uh, didn't look uh, so rosy. Mm. And just about that time, we had also hired uh, Dave Cutler and a bunch of other guys from uh, Digital Equipment Corporation. Mm-hmm. And these guys had, like, you know, a strong track record of building, you know, industrial strength operating systems. And we had started thinking about what it meant for Microsoft to build a 32-bit operating system from scratch. Mm-hmm. Sort of, a, you know, a modular, you know, modern, you know, portable operating system. Secure, reliable, all the fun things that you can that you think about when you think operating systems, right? Yeah. So uh, about early 1990, sort of March 1990 to be precise, uh, Dave and his team had done enough work that they thought they knew what the design for an operating system would look like, and Microsoft was excited about it. And we said, you know, hey, let's pull together a small engineering team to go start building this advanced operating system, which we had codenamed back then as NT. Now you're talking about, did you say Dave Cutler in that? Yeah, Dave Cutler, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, just 
I I don't want to let that one go because you are talking about Dave Cutler, one of the best operating system guys that have, has ever existed. Yeah, that was that was his baby. That, that is true. That is true. He's he's he worked on PDP eleven, Wax VMS, and NT. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's an unbelievable record, and yeah, they, and such a visionary for the way an operator should be. Absolutely, absolutely. He's one of the best uh, engineers that I've come across in my life. And you also worked on Windows 2000 and XP and, and Server yep. 2003? So I started, started on NT right then in early 1990 and then went on to ship NT 3.1, 3.5, 3.51, Windows 2000, Windows XP, Windows Server 2003. So I stayed in sort of the operating system land for the first 14 years of my career at Microsoft. Well, that you say you're a systems guy. What what parts of the operating system did you like to work on the, the most? I was primarily in the, at least in the initial stages of my career, it was in the kernel. I'd worked on file systems, memory management, you know, the process management stuff. So a lot of kernel components. Wow. That's hardcore. Right. And then as time went on, I took on broader responsibilities, management responsibilities in Windows kind of thing. And so I had finished shipping 2003, Windows Server 2003. This was in April of 2003. And just about the time, and we had started working on, you know, what we had codenamed Longhorn back then, which turned out to be Windows Vista finally when we shipped it. But sometime in 2003, you know, I got a call from Eric Rudder. Now, he was the guy who was running server and tools back then for Microsoft. And uh, he said, you know, hey, you've been uh, in Windows for so long. Have you ever thought about doing something other than Windows? And that's how we started the conversation. And six months later, I had taken up the job to run developer division working for Eric. Well, that's that's quite a shift <laughs> <laughs> from doing operating system goo to to developer tools. Obviously, you're no, uh, you're not new to the idea of development tools. You've been using them all your career. What, uh... that, that is true. The, to me, to me the, the thing is this, right? You know, I, 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 I get asked sometimes, you know, hey, so you were in Windows, why did you make the switch to developer division kind of thing? Yeah. If you go back to the history of Microsoft, we've always been a platform company in our hearts. Yeah. Okay? And to me, whenever I say that, what that really means is we, uh, <clears throat> we want to build a platform, and no matter what layer of the stack we are talking about, we want to build a set of functionality, but make it or uh, build it in such a way that it is highly extensible so that other people or other developers can come in and add to that and build on top of that. Yeah. Okay? So if you take that view and if you look at the world through that lens, the customer segment that is the most important customer segment for us is the developer audience. Absolutely. Well, that's, yeah, and that's been Microsoft's forte for years. Yeah. So, so getting a chance, and I always think about like you know the developer division as sort of the center of the universe at Microsoft because we are the guardian angels thinking about like you know how do we uh, engage with the developer audience, no matter where the technology is coming from, and how do we provide you know the broadest pipeline possible to the development community so that they can be effective and successful using our tools on our platforms, right? So I sort of think about the developer division as the center of a lot of things happening in the company. So getting a chance to run that division, I thought was an awesome, awesome, awesome opportunity that I wanted to, you know, that was made available to me. I said I should take this and try it out. <laughs> Soma, you're covering such a huge breadth of products. I mean, I think we've probably done a show on ev- virtually every product that you're touching. How do you stay in contact with that much diversity? 
that's a good question that's a good question the the good news is right you know as much as you know we have a, a breadth of technologies and products that we do in the developer division i think you know we have some of the most fantastic people possible working on these technologies working on these products and driving forward you know uh, the progress that we want to make on these products so i do have like you know uh, a very very good set of people uh, in my organization who's leading and driving all these different technologies and products so the first thing i would say is i have a lot of confidence in in the people who are driving these things and second thing is as much as we you know grown we've tried hard to make sure that we have you know what i call a check and balance or a set of you know rhythms that we follow to make sure that we are aligned uh, that we you know stay focused and we you know you know make sure that we connect the dots between the various things that we are developing because at the end of the day if i have to summarize it all we are developing a set of platform technologies and a set of tools to enable developers to take advantage and be able to build the best applications and experiences on top of these platforms so how often do you get a chance to really get to look at the apps uh, the various products that are being built i i know i read these stories of how uh, bill g would would uh, ha- have the product shown to him on a regular basis do you do something like that yeah i, I have a sort of a you know, uh, monthly rhythm with uh, all the all the major technologies and product groups that that are in my division where i get a chance to talk to people about like you know what is happening in 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 their particular piece of the technology or their product get a chance to see some demos get a chance to walk through you know uh, some designs and the status of the product so um and as i said before i read this list i mean it covers visual studio and expression and silverlight and iis and asp net um the uh there's just a lot of a lot of great innovation coming out of microsoft how much do you uh, – there's a couple of things that I don't see that we talk about sometimes in here, which is, uh, I guess, is workflow in that list as well? Say workflow and uh, WCF, uh, those are two parts of the framework that come from one of the divisions that are sort of parallel to developer division. We have another division called the Connected Systems Division. Right. They build both the Workflow Foundation as well as the Windows Communication Foundation, both of them ship as part of the .NET framework. Right. Okay. So since it is part of the framework, that's in there as well. Yeah. And um, and what about SharePoint? SharePoint comes from another part of the company. The the that is a sort of you know M- MBD is a is a PNL or a business group at Microsoft, which stands for Microsoft Business Division. That's run by a guy called Stephen Elop. Uh, SharePoint is a product that comes out of that world. You do have some overlap there, though, because there are there's a lot of development going on in SharePoint. So there are two things I would say. SharePoint is taking a bet on some of our technologies in terms of ASP.NET and the like. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is to the extent that we want to develop a set of tooling capability for developers to be able to go do things on SharePoint. Right. That's you know going to come out of my world. So we overlap and we talk to you know SharePoint a lot. You know, Carl's really hit on an interesting thing here. SharePoint sits in an interesting position where, on one hand, it's a consumer of ASP.NET, which is a product certainly you're uh-huh. involved in. And then on the other hand, it is also consumed by things like uh, Visual Studio, who have to be able to develop against SharePoint. And again, that's your product. You have to go in and out. It, it's almost like you have a sales process to your own company. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Actually, when there is one part of my organization that that delivers some technology that is consumed by SharePoint, and then there is another part of my division that you know takes the SharePoint product and builds some tools 
to, to work on SharePoint so that people can do some fun things on SharePoint. So it's sort of a two-way relationship that we have for different parts of the division. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. It's got to be really tough. Often I get the sense that each of the Microsoft teams are doing their own thing and often don't know what the other group is doing. It's got to be a big challenge to just keep everyone informed about what's available within the company. Right. It's, it's a tricky balance that we'll have to think through. On the one hand, you want teams to be as autonomous as possible, right? Right. Uh, you don't want to get caught where, like, you know, hey, decision-making or, like, you know, communication flow gets bottlenecked at any one point in the organization. And as the divisions and as the company and as the kinds of things that we want to increase, uh, both in scope as well as in complexity, the the more we can enable teams to be uh, operating as agile as possible and as agile a manner as possible, operating in as autonomous a way as possible, you know, that is required on the one hand. On the other hand, you can't have like you know every team going off and doing things on their own uh, without being able to connect the dots. So that you know, at the end of the day, one of the goals that we have is uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts, right? And for that, you need to think through and be able to connect the dots. And to me, you know, frankly, when I look at my job or like you know the leadership team's job here at Microsoft, it's as much as connecting the dots as anything else. Sure. When I look at a, at a, a service set like Workflow where it was obvious there was three or four different groups inside of Microsoft that were all doing workflow-like things. So to pull it into a single area that the others would ultimately consume, that uh, obviously is leveraging that advantage, but it's also got to be really politically challenging to get that happening. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a team that essentially does not sell a product themselves. You know, it doesn't actually make money. It's, it's valuable to the other teams. No, that, that is true. And, and uh, I, I would sort of, you know... Uh, tell you that such things, there is always an opportunity for us to be able to do better, right? You know, mm-hmm. guys like, you know, Bill in the past, and now, you know, guys like Ray Ozzy and, uh, you know, Craig Mundy try playing the, that role to a certain extent. But we also have uh, a, a small number of what we call technical fellows, sort of the, the highest ranked technical guys uh, in the company that have a strong role to play in terms of how we can bring things together. You know, when, when we do, when we are in initial stages of some technology, oftentimes we find ourselves in a, in a situation where, you know, multiple groups in the company are working on the same technology. 
because you know people see a need for that they don't see a clear solution and they start working on it and before you realize two or three teams are trying to do something that that should be you know reconciled that should be rationalized into one right and sometimes you know depending on like you know how much progress has been made and who the players are it may not be as simple as it needs to be and and that's where like you know we 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 you know use the technical fellows and the you know the CSAs of the world to come in and help us and try to figure out you know at what point in time we also need to make sure that we don't get into the what i call the grand unification theory all the time <laughs> right there is one okay, code base for all right you can't do it too early you can't do it too late so you just need to be thoughtful and you know figure out you know hey what is the right time to think about rationalizing for wh- when do we do that and what are the right sets of reasons we do that and and so it's a tricky thing but one that we we grapple with all the time and i think you know sometimes we do a very good job and sometimes i think we can uh, learn and do better by the way um congratulations on the olympic silver light thing with nbc that is so great i've been i've been watching it throughout the whole entire thing oh awesome yeah so thank you for that that that's been one of the things that we've been very very excited about in some sense and i would say touch wood because you know, i think the olympics is is still not over so i don't want to like you know prematurely you know say wow it was a fantastic thing kind of thing but so far uh and, and i watch it you know on and off as well uh the 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 work that the silverlight team working with the msn team and the nbc guys that they've done is just awesome the experience i think is fantastic judging by the number of people who been watching you know olympics on their pc or on their you know desktop or whatever it is uh i think seeing their feet, the number of people watching it the number of video streams that have been you know uh streamed the kind of feedback that we're getting i think it's been an awesome 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 thing that the teams have done boy sure has i remember watching um some i don't know czechoslovakian or volleyball or something it wasn't even that no it couldn't have been that because there's no czechoslovakia anymore but it was some country's volleyball uh team on a mac in my hotel room in boston just on my macbook and i just thought wow this looks great and and just the fact that it's running on my on my macbook was amazing you know that's great yeah that is yeah and so we are really really happy about you know the progress that we made with silverlight and as you probably know right you know silverlight 2 is still in beta and uh, we are on a, we need to put the finishing touches on that and we hope to get it done before the end of this calendar year it's Microsoft must have spent a ton of money to make that happen. I mean, really much you must have built a version of Silverlight because it's still under development to do this, knowing you're going to learn so much about how it's going to perform under load. That is true. This was a uh, on a variety of uh, you know different dimensions. We felt really good about it. First thing is the size and scale of what we were going to do if we had done this deal was just awesome under. It would prove to us that you know, hey, the technology is really ready for like you know the the largest internet scale loads kind of thing. The second thing, because of the way the timing worked out, we knew that we wouldn't have the final version of you know Silverlight 2, uh, but you know NBC was willing to take a bet on us, and we were ready to step up and say like you know, hey, we are going to do some different things in terms of when we would stabilize what, so that we have a rock solid beta 2 that we could give to the NBC guys for this you know for for this event and so we we actually slowed down a little bit in terms of how we would have done things otherwise because we wanted to get this experience and then hindsight it's been hugely hugely valuable for us and hopefully it's been a great experience for people uh, who watched the Olympics oh and i think it's a huge coup for silverlight absolutely huge 
Thank you. Yeah. Well, that, the really mythical thing, watching with the Silverlight, is the ability to analyze the speed of the connection and then adjust how much data you're loading, the resolution quality based on the connection you've got. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, magic, because, we, is what we that is. Yeah, we have this capability which we call adaptive streaming uh, that lets you, like, you know, understand, like, you know, what kind of a connection you are coming in with, and then be able to adjust the bitrate appropriately. And that's been working out really well so far. Now, you know, of course, one of the frustrations because I'm in Canada is that the the whole NBC Olympics deal was just for the U.S. That is true. Yeah. So right. we're not able to see the same product the same way. They there uh, there is a Canadian rebroadcaster, but they're doing something different. That is true, yeah. The, 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 the deal that the NBC guys had, at least for this particular thing, it was a U.S.-only thing. Yeah, that's that's tough. You know, the, the, the Internet's really messed up this whole model of you know, U.S.-only. We've got to move on past that, but that's not Microsoft. That's the Olympics, right? Right. That's, that's the Olympics and uh, now how, how they decide to partner with the, the broadcasting companies and how they do the the deals on a geo by geo basis or whether they do it on a worldwide basis it's it's something that they have to figure out what the right thing is for their customers well speaking of canada you set up a development center in canada and and also overseas in in india you set up some r&d centers or things over there tell us about some of your overseas work sure so if, if you look at the history of the company the history of microsoft right till about the early 90s or the mid 90s we were heavily heavily focused on being a a single location development organization, right? And uh, we we had, got, we had decided, you know, Redmond to be our center of operations. And we had most, if not all, of our development activities happening out of Redmond. And that worked really, really well for us, at least during the initial years of the company, because we were trying to build in a lot of good things and we wanted to have a certain set of integration that we thought, you know, would be super valuable. And having people all in the same location, we could scale to what we were doing big back then. But then somewhere around the 93, 94, 95 time frame, we started thinking about like, you know, hey, we, our aspirations for the kinds of software that we want to build continues to only increase, doesn't decrease. And we are going to soon reach a point where it is going to be pretty much, you know, very hard to be able to have the best and brightest people from around the world all wanting to come to one part of the world. Right, as much as we can get excited about Redmond and Seattle and all that fun stuff, some people are interested in coming here and some people are not going to be interested in coming here. And uh, we, we'd always had a, a big gap between our demand and supply, meaning like you know the number of people that we wanted to have on board to be able to do the kinds of things that we cared about, and the actual number of people that we could get. You know, there was always a gap, and we saw the gap, you know, potentially widening over time. And so, about the 96, 97 time frame. Uh, we were talking about it in the product development groups here, and we came to the realization and the conclusion that we need to, you know, we may have to go to places where people are as opposed to expecting them all to come here for us to be able to continue getting the best and brightest into the company. And it was also a, a tricky one because we really didn't know whether we knew how to do distributed development at the time. So one of the things that we talked about was, you know, hey, let's go learn what it means to do effective distributed development. And so in the 97 time frame, uh, Bill agreed that we would do something in India. And, you know, Bill and Paul Ma Paul Maritz back then, who was running all of our product development groups, these days came to me and said, you know, hey, do you want to go try this, you know, experiment in India, right? You know, will you help us do this because you're from that part of the world and you may know what is what kind of thing, right? So I said, sure, I'll do that. 
So it took us about a year between 97 and 98 for us to decide that, yep, we are going to do something in India primarily to learn what it means for us to be able to do development with a group of people that is not necessarily located in Redmond. In fact, it was like, you know, almost the other end of the world, other side of the world, and let's see what we can learn. So over the last 10 years, we've, we've sort of you know, learned and learned and grow, grown and grown. And today we have about a 1,500 people strong wow. R&D lab in India. Wow. Working on a variety of products and technologies across the breadth of Microsoft. Now you've wow. also got R&D labs in, uh, in Cambridge. Uh, yeah. And so, so let me talk about that. So, sure. So what we did in, in India. And then we said, like, you know, hey, as much as, you know, there is a lot of, you know, a good talent in India, we also felt that there was a lot of good talent in China. So we set up an R&D lab in China that's, you know, grown considerably well in the last 10 years in China now. And then we said, uh, so to be clear, the R&D labs that I'm talking about are primarily product development labs. There are two kinds of labs that we have at Microsoft. One is the typical product development, and then there is a MSR or Microsoft Research Lab. So take India and China, for example. You got both a product development lab and the MSR lab. Okay. And then in Cambridge, we decided to set up an MSR lab several years ago because we felt, you know, there was a lot of, you know, research uh, kind of talent that we could get in Cambridge. And so we went ahead and set up an MSR lab there. So today we have labs around the world that's both focused on product development sometimes and sometimes focused on research depending on which location you are in. And uh, some uh, ge- geographies like India and China, we've got both kinds of labs set up. Wow. So these aren't, like you said, these, some of these are products and some are for development. That's, uh, that, what about the one in Canada, the, the facility? The, the one in Canada is what I call a product development lab. So last year, you know, if, if you look around the world, right, the places where we think there is a, are a good number of you know, talented people, particularly passionate about software, we thought, you know, we have them in India, we have them in China, we have them in Canada, we have them in Israel, we have them in Europe. So, you know, different places where we think there is a there is a, a concentration of such talent that we could get get into to be a part of Microsoft, we've been, you know, steadily opening up labs. Today, I would say, like, you know, we've got labs, you know, both outside the United States and inside the United States that's outside of Redmond. What kinds of things have these labs contributed to that we've seen in products? So let me talk about you know India because I'm a little bit more closely uh, affiliated with that, and then I can you know uh, expand a little bit on some of the other R&D labs. Okay, okay sure. Uh, so a lot of our mobile development work that we do uh, comes from our India lab. Okay. Okay. Take for example uh, uh, Office Mobile. Take for example Unified Communications Mobile. Take for example Visual Studio for devices. Wow. Take, for example, you know, the silver light for mobile devices. Wow. A lot of this work is coming out of our India lab. So is the actual product team in India, or is there also a team in Redmond? Uh, the product team is in India, actually. Wow, okay. Cool. So, I mean, it's really the entire product lives uh, uh, and is developed out of India. Yeah. Was that the compact framework as well? The compact frame, for framework, you know, recently we we used to have a team working on that here. And recently, we decided to move that to align with the rest of the mobility work that we do. So the next version of compact framework that comes out is going to be done by the team in India. Well, they get to play with all the cool toys, huh? <laughs> <laughs> the, good, the good news is we have enough cool toys that pretty much, you know, no matter which part of Microsoft you're working in, sure. you get a chance to play with that. 
<laughs> so uh, the the you know I'll give you another example. Take uh, you know Israel for example. Uh, some of our security work uh, that we do in our security products that happens in Israel. Uh, take for example the the ISA server that we have that comes from Israel. Hmm. Wow, interesting. I mean, it's just and, and uh, how involved do you get in the acquisition side of things at, at Microsoft? Uh, as, uh, each each product group or each business group uh, deals with acquisitions that uh, meaning that they do for their business. So right. to the extent that we do any acquisitions in the developer division, I get more involved with that. And to the extent acquisitions happen on some other part of the company, some other person who is running that particular division is going to be involved in. That's that's got to be. I don't know how much you could talk about that. I know it's it's fairly proprietary stuff, but the decision to acquire a company has got to be a really interesting one to make. That is true. It's it's a really interesting one to make, and we go through a pretty detailed process of like you know, hey, uh, what does the buy versus build analysis look like? You know, you, and you have to look at like you know, hey, what is the what what does what does the economics look like? You know, what does the time to market look like in either of those options, and whether you know it is a right business decision, and finally. Does it, you know, complement or does it enhance whatever we are trying to do in the marketplace, and how does it play into the other businesses that we have or the other technologies that we have? And so it's it's a pretty a pretty detailed set of analysis and discussions that happen, and depending on the size of the acquisition, you know, right from you know the VP of a particular group all the way to the top of the company gets involved, depending on you know the magnitude, the complexity, the size of any particular acquisition. Sure. I mean, when I think about software, I think that it's mostly about the talent of the people. So I'm, I'm wondering how you weigh uh, the, the folks that are going to come to Microsoft as a part of an acquisition versus the software that you're buying. Uh, you know, my mental model is this, okay? You you tend to do acquisitions for for usually one of three reasons, Okay. You either do it for the product slash technology or business, okay? Uh, the second is you do it for the people. The third is the third is you do it for a customer base, okay? Right. And usually a successful acquisition is one where you get benefits on more than just one. But as long as you are clear about what the top pivot is, top pivotal reason is for you to do the acquisition, and you need to do that. And depending on the size of the acquisition, sometimes you say like you know, hey. Uh, the technology is important, uh, as well as the people, or just the people are important, or just the technology, and you decide, you know, what is the most critical need for you, and how you're going to structure the deal so that you you get you get into a win-win situation, both, you know, for the company that is acquiring and for the company that's being acquired. Right. That's it's very I'll, interesting I'll, stuff. I'll, right, and I'll tell you one more thing. Some of these acquisitions that we've done over the years have also given, you know, uh, are, has also helped us learn how we do distributed development. Take, for example, Navision. That's right. a company that we acquired in from Europe. And that R&D group is, was, uh, that company was based out of uh, Copenhagen. And we said in our head, it's, it's a large enough you know, set of people uh, with roots there that we're going to leave them there. So we have a, you know, a large you know, development lab in Copenhagen today, which was primarily as a result of that acquisition. And that makes sense. To, I guess that's how we got here talking about acquisition is really the fact that you're now going into distributed development models like that and having products exist entirely outside of the, the Redmond campus has got to be part of that acquisition sure. strategy that you can keep a good performing team together. We have local companies that are supporting those industries locally. You, Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and the, the, the cost of you know, uh, relocating, uh, it, it, not the, the dollar 
but the the pain that you have that lot of people have to go through in in uh, in uh, relocation uh, when an acquisition happens is sometimes very expensive and not worth doing the acquisition so we'll have to think through really uh, if it is a let's say we make a small acquisition where there are two people involved then it's easier job to think about like you know whether it makes sense to relocate them to to an existing lab as opposed to creating a new lab but right. whenever you're talking in like terms of like you know 50 or 100 or you know 500 or 1000 people it is you, know, you really need to think about you know are you ready to keep it wherever they are and then factor it into how the rest of the company is running and know that it can be successful and that 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 plays a role in the acquisition uh, decision as well well and setting up new labs is not an inexpensive proposition either that is true yeah and and the, and the reason we do that is because you know we want to be really really thoughtful about the long term implications I don't want to be in a situation where I say, "Now, hey, today I'm going to open a lab in XYZ city, and tomorrow, you know, let me shut down that lab because, you know, hey, I didn't think through what it meant to have that lab." Sure. We can't really do that, so we have to be really thoughtful and responsible about setting up a lab in a different location and know that, you know, that's something that we can sustain for the long haul. Yes. And that's true whether we do it ourselves or whether we do it as a result of an acquisition. It's a sign of a good executive who likes to be objective about these things. You have to stay objective. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also don't think quarter to quarter, but many years in advance. That's true, and that's you know, of all the things, of all the things that I'm excited to have learned from Microsoft, the one thing that I personally think that I've learned from is you know, the Mike, Microsoft does a fantastic job of thinking long term, right? No matter what we do, you know, we 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 rarely you know we we know that we have responsibilities to our shareholders and so we have to think about what this quarter looks like or what the next quarter looks like but a lot of the decisions that we make uh, particularly as it relates to R&D and how we you know do product development what technologies we invest in what products we invest in which people we invest in and which part of the world we invest in we really try to take a look at the long term and and make sure that you know what whatever we are doing is sustainable and helps us be successful over a long period of time as opposed to a short period of time Well, and I would point out you were in India in 97. You were well ahead of the curve. <laughs> I should tell you just last week I was back in India to help celebrate the 10th year anniversary of the India R&D lab. Fabulous. So it was a good milestone. Yeah, no yes. kidding. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh make activereports.net among other really awesome things. activereports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor. embed them right in your application provide pdf and html output give your end users a report editor royalty free of course a great access report upsizing wizard and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank actorreports.net from data dynamics go check it out now at datadynamics.com let me get back to the technical soma for a minute if i can now You have degrees in electronics and communication engineering and uh in a master's in computer engineering and you're a grad student in computer engineering from the State University of New York. So, uh not no technical slouch here. And and I know being a guy who works on operating systems that you uh know a lot about threads and scheduling and so it was interesting for me to read that your group drives the cross-company parallel computing initiative. That is so cool. How 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 is that a cross company initiative work? I mean, what are, what's your what are you trying to do? So so let let, let me take a st- step back and talk about that. So we you know have been uh, benefiting from Moore's law 
for the last 25 30 years right Definitely. every 18 months you know the moore's law says you know hey you're going to double your uh, processing speed or clock speed and the cost is going to have right and that's worked well for the last 25 30 years but we are reaching a brick or we've reached in some sense a brick wall where you know you're not going to be able to get the kind of clock speed advances the way you got it in the past and so if you're an application developer you you really need uh, need to do too many things you sort of you know uh, build your application and just the fact that you know the clock speed doubled every uh, 18 months your your application is going to run faster in the new environment as well right so people didn't have to do too much to eke out performance in their single threaded application and most applications are still single threaded as much as we talk about multi threaded and multi processing and all that fun stuff a lot of applications are still single threaded right and so if you talk to the hardware guys if you talk to the intels and the amds of the world they will tell you that you know hey those days are pretty much gone and the way we are going to advance or make advances in hardware is by having multiple and many cores on the same chip okay and you know intel will tell you that you know hey you know next year or year after next or in the next 3 years pretty much every system that is going to come out out of intel is going to be like you know having multiple cores and many many cores on the same chip right well and we're certainly seeing that now we we p4 backed off from pushing the 4 gigahertz mark back to these multi core processors that are 2 and a half to 3 gigahertz but we've got two cores four cores and so on yeah and and today you know quad core is pretty much you know becoming common and then you know if you look at intel's roadmap they'll tell you, you know hey it's next is 8 and 16 and 32 and 64 That's who knows uh, where it's going to end right sure and for us to be able to you know take advantage of the hardware processing power the computing power the graphics power that comes in in this many core world we need to really figure out how we enable uh, developers to be able to take advantage of parallel computing okay and and as much as we've talked about parallel computing in this industry for the last 40 50 years it's still restricted to an elite few people who have actually access to in you know, a parallel hardware right okay and that's all going to change with this multi many core revolution that's happening and so a few years ago we at microsoft decided you know working in partnership with our hardware guys that you know hey we need to make some breakthrough advances in software across all layers of the stack right from you know the operating system through the runtimes through the tools through the applications so that we enable our developer ecosystem to be able to take advantage of the advances in parallel computing you know i think for example both on the desktop as well as on the server side i think there is a whole new world of opportunities in this in this new hardware world and so we we decided to start up an effort at the end of the day i think you know every product group at microsoft needs to think about what parallel computing means to them for their particular piece of the stack but since it was a brand new initiative we said you know hey let's anchor it in one part of the company to get it going to get it started and then once it reaches you know some critical mass then let's make sure that every team you know starts picking up their own responsibilities and since you know the the audience that we we thought of uh, at first as sort of being the customers for this the developer audience we decided to house this effort this cross company initiative as part of the developer division but we really are working with the windows group we are working with the rest of the developer division group we are working with the applications group trying to make sure that people start thinking about what they need to do as part of this you know transformation or inflection point that we see is going to happen in the industry right and we already like you know shipped what i call in you know, a couple of you know community technology previews uh, some parallel extensions to our you know languages think about this as the first baby steps that we are taking 
in terms of figuring out what we need to do in terms of tools and you know runtime technologies to help developers build parallel applications. And over the next year or year and a half, you're going to see us deliver a bunch more technologies in various forms to developers. I guess the thing I'm, I think most people are worried about here is how much relearning are we going to have to do to really take advantage of parallel computing? And I compare it to the jump we made to get to .NET uh, versus, say, uh, you know, adopting an existing class library. Richard, I think using these new tools is going to be a walk in the park compared to using the tools that we had before. Oh, I, I mean, I think everybody's clear on the fact that parallel computing is really hard right now. That is true, yeah. And, and, and I, I, sh- I sort of share your concern because if, if we end up in a situation where every developer out there has, go, has to go back and relearn everything, then I think, you know, we are, uh, we are sort of not set up for success. So we'll have to figure out how you as a developer know a particular set of constructs today. And how can we, you know, get you to start, you know, making the transition to the parallel computing world with the same set of constructs and maybe learn a little bit more. And then, you know, as it's sort of, you know, pay as you go kind of thing. Is it possible to to re-architect an operating system from the ground up to be more friendly to parallel development? Let's put it this way. We will have to do... I, I don't know whether we'll have to do from scratch or whether we'll have to... whether we can go in and plumb from the inside out kind of thing. Uh, there is one piece of work that we are currently doing with Windows which we call user mode scheduling. Okay? Okay. Uh, that's the piece of work that we think, you know, we can add to the current set of operating system constructs and be able to do things uh, to take a better advantage of how we schedule tasks and, you know, threads and processes in a multi- multiple many-core world. We think that's a piece of technology that can be useful, okay? So so we are still trying to figure out, you know, hey, where do we need to go back, go in and, and re-architect uh, completely, where we can go in and enhance or add some technologies that makes it easier for people to get into. I, I, do sh- I, I do absolutely agree with your concern that, you know, you cannot come back. If the answer is like, you know, hey, there is a whole new paradigm that we'll have to go through and everybody else out in the world has to go through to, to participate in this world, then that may be a tougher, you know, jump to, to take. Yeah. We'll have to figure out how we can make incremental progress on the one hand so that people can, uh, can reuse their existing skills and move their existing skills forward and pick up some new things uh, to help them get into this new world. In other words, for, try not to change the programming model as we know it so much that it becomes uh, uh, not cost-effective. Yeah, I would rather say, you know, we, we would love to enhance the programming model as opposed to having to invent a whole new programming model. Right, right. Well, I mean, and it, I mean, there's some libraries coming along like this, but it's interesting to he- think about the changes the OS itself is going to go through. And I got to think you're thinking in this pain for the whole of Microsoft, too, because there's an awful lot of applications that Microsoft builds that could be more parallel. Absolutely, absolutely. We, as I said, right, we have to think about it across the whole stack, right? We have to think about it at the operating system level all the way to the application level because we have our own set of applications that we need to figure out how they are going to move into this new world. And more importantly, more than like the existing applications, we also think that this, you know, this uh, inflection point is going to enable a whole new class of applications to come to light, and we'll have to figure out what role we want to play or not play as as new new class of applications come into existence. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
How much time do you get to forward think like this? Because you're managing a huge group of people. Uh, the, the, the answer is, you know, the answer is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I do take, you know, time off, you know, like, you know, a few days here or a few days there or, you know, a couple of days with the senior technical leaders in my division kind of thing where we go off for an offsite where we just, you know, think about more of the forward-looking stuff as opposed to the here and the now, which is where we spend a lot of our time, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I always feel like, you know, hey, maybe I should do a few more of those, a few more of those kind of things. But we try to find a, a, a decent balance between, you know, uh, thinking about the the here and the now, the short term for the next three years, and then, you know, the long term, which is more like the seven to ten years kind of thing. And hopefully, you know, you might have heard about one of the things that we've started in the company in the last couple of years, which we call the Quest process. I don't think I have no, heard I that. Heard What's of the that Quest process? Either. Okay. So this is something where we said, like, you know, hey, you know, let, let's sort of, you know, write down what the magnetic north looks like for, you know, the kinds of software that we want to build, which is more like a, a vision that's for the next 10 years or for the next 15 years kind of thing where we really think about what the hard problems are that we need to solve, what are the scenarios that we want to enable, and what are the technology bits that we need to make so that we can enable those end-to-end scenarios to happen kind of thing. This was something that, you know, Bill and David Vaskovich started uh, probably about two, three years ago kind of thing. And uh, it's now come into, like, you know, a, a pretty good cadence where every year we go through and say, like, you know, hey, what, what has changed in the last year? What have we learned in the last year? How do we, you know, modify these quests so that, you know, they remain both up-to-date and relevant and sort of continue providing the magnetic knot? Now, these quests are not necessarily what, what you would think about as detailed product plans or anything like that. No, they're they are just... more like, you know, hey, here is how we think about the next 10 years. And, for example, take the developer world. We have about, you know, a dozen quests or so covering different parts of, you know, what what we think about as application development and development tools and developer platforms. And so we use that as a way to think about, like, you know, more of the long-term thinking that will then help us guide our short-term, you know, product planning that we do from one product to the next. Sort of a vision quest kind of thing. Yeah. You're really painting a broad picture of what you wish things could be. Right. Yeah. And is that across the whole company or is this really like a tech fellow thing? No, no, this is across the whole company. Wow. Uh, but primarily, you know, run by run out of the business uh, groups or the product groups. So the technical guys in the product groups are probably the, each quest has got an owner, and the owner is usually, you know, a technical fellow or an architect or a, or a senior technical manager in a product group. Interesting. And so these things get to surface so often and really influence the direction of products. Yeah, it, it, it does two things, right? Uh, it influences the, the the direction in which we want to you know go in terms of product development. It also gives a great op- earlier. I think you asked this question. You know, hey, with the com- with just the developer division doing you know a breadth of products and technologies, and the company doing even even a broader set of things. How do you keep each other informed, and how do you know what is going on kind of thing? We do have a have a way where we get all the senior technical people and the managers into one place in in, in, a, in in the company and say, hey, let's let's educate each other about the different quests so that people have a good view of what is happening across the breadth of the company. And then they can take the knowledge back to whatever they are doing and think about when to make the connection, where to make the connection, how to make the connection with other parts of the company. Interesting. 
I got it. You know, I've always appreciated the fact that Microsoft's really created this. Uh, there's a management stack, which obviously you're involved in, but there's also the the whole technical stack, and the tech fellows are well. In a lot of ways, they're like peers to you, aren't they? But they're they're on a different side. Absolutely, they are like you know the the the. Uh, as an example, right, we think about the technical fellows as sort of the equivalent of uh, vice presidents in the company. Right. So, you know, you can be a manager and be a... And, and just, the, but it, it's an interesting relationship. Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting relationship, but, but one that has served us really well because at the heart of, you know, our business, we are still a technology company, right? Right. And so, you know, the guys who sort of, you know, lead us into making technological innovations and technological breakthroughs are the technical fellows and the technical guys. So we need to provide them an opportunity and an environment where they are, you know, they can be highly influential. And in some sense, you know, the VP is influential because they manage an organization. The technical fellow is equally, if not more, influential because they are the technical, you know, sort of uh, head of what we are trying to do. So very old specialist minds, and but not necessarily running huge teams of people, just thinking about these interesting problems. Yeah, but but the the kinds of technological things, technologies that they think about. They have as much influence as you know a, a manager who's managing a large organization because the 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 their the technology that they think about the impact that they have you know cuts across multiple parts of the you know the division and the company sometimes. So Selma, to you, where is the big innovation going on in Microsoft now? I'm almost tempted to say everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, and that's not an unfair statement, too, because you've really sort of talked about how you've kept the teams relatively small and independent so they can stay agile and, in, and innovate everywhere. But maybe the way to phrase this would be, uh, what's your favorite chunk of innovation going go. on right now? It's obviously what comes out of developer division. <laughs> <laughs> also, you, you've got to love Silverlight. Also warranted. Right. <laughs> no, I, 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 I really think that, you know, that there is a, you know, pretty much, you know, here is one way I would say say this. If we don't continue innovating, we are going to become irrelevant. Right. Okay. No matter how successful we've been in the past, no matter, you know, what kind of great things we've delivered in the past, if we aren't continuing to innovate, if we aren't continuing to be, you know, the leading, you know, value provider for our uh, customers, then we are going to be irrelevant. So from that perspective, the fact that we are in, like, you know, multiple different businesses and that we either are successful or have aspirations to be successful, we better be innovating, right? And, and take a look at just developer division and the kinds of things that we've come out with in the last few years. You know, we already talked about, you know, the innovation that we are trying to do in parallel computing world, okay? That's mm-hmm. a, a good chunk of innovation that I'm excited about. Right. Take Silverlight, you know, you know, in some sense, you know, sometimes we feel like, you know, hey, we, uh, Silverlight has been around for too long, but it's only like you know, a year ago that we shipped the first version. Last yeah. September was when we shipped the first version of Silverlight. So the the innovation that we see in Silverlight and we'll continue seeing in Silverlight with Silverlight 2 on future, that's you know exciting for me, particularly as we make inroads into that being you know a great platform for developers to be able to uh, develop and deliver you know both media as well as rich internet applications. I think that's a great you know piece of innovation that's coming out of us. Take Expression Studio. Yes. Uh, that that comes out of Microsoft or comes out of developer division, right? You know historically. We really haven't done a good job providing a set of tools focused on the creative professional, the professional designers. With Expression right. Studio, there is a ton of opportunities for us to continue innovating and really, you know, enable people to take advantage of the latest and greatest platform technologies and be able to provide great experiences. So that's something, you know, that's, that's awesome. 
uh, you know, the vast majority of the division is starting to work. Now that, you know, SP1 for Argus or for Visual Studio 2008 and .NET Framework 3.5 is done, uh, we are starting to have the vast majority of the division work on the next family of releases. And there is a ton of innovation that's happening there. It's a little bit too early for me to talk about that because we are still sort of finalizing our plan and thinking about what is it that we are going to do sure. with the next wave of releases. But in the next couple of months, I think we'll be able to start talking a little bit more about that. And hopefully you'll be excited to see the innovation that's coming out of there. Now let's not forget Deep Zoom. Yep. Oh, my Deep God. Zoom. So amazing. <laughs> and that, you know, is shipping in Silverlight, too. That's so cool. There's just so much happening all at once here with all these different technologies. That, that, that is true. And and so we need to think about, like, you know, hey, you know, how do these innovations, you know, turn into, you know, products? How do these products, you know, uh, end up doing the right things for the customers? And so thinking about the scenarios as much as we think about the technology and the technology innovation is important. So we need to connect the two and make sure that we can deliver something that actually makes sense for the customer at the end of the day and actually helps them do something better that they care about doing. Well, I think that's a show. I know your time is limited, so we got to let you go, Soma. But, geez, thank you. thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your stories with us. It's always great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me here. And I do want to take this opportunity and say hello and thanks to all, all the Dotnet developers out there who are listening, your show, listening to your show. And good luck with the show. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.